you know something that gets kind of uh, frustrating to me like for example this conversation right now we have a, a black man and a white man talking about um, intersectionality you know like one of the things that used to be kind of frustrating is that you know sometimes you know because that standpoint idea people someone could dismiss this and say well hey um you guys have a shared interest as males and discrediting you know this ideology that uh, you know exposes your um, co-patriarch coalition or whatever but the thing that can find kind of frustrating is you know i've i started in a way trying to think that way in terms of hosting the podcast or doing um discussion but then i would find if you bring on like a, a black woman who's um uh, even queer who reiterates the same thing uh then there'll be a problem with that because she is, has internalized patriarchy or is um you know a, a pick me or some other like term or for some reason it's like you need someone who got the right intersectional scholarship and there's always like this kind of moving target about why you know um that doesn't count that doesn't count but then the other thing i found is that when you do try to have conversations with people who are in this uh sphere one of the problems is the type of um constant moving target thing that that, that, that we describe like, like i tried to have a discourse with um intersectional feminists and talk about how it um talks about how it treats black men and they'll be like well intersectionality has done the most for um you know advancing the problems of, of black men it's like wait but how like how does this happen and they'll they'll claim that everything that you are bringing up intersectionality already did and um a lot of times they either can't give you an exact example how or they'll give you an example but that's kind of like out of context and when you look at the context it's um it's mentioned but it's ultimately discredited in the same text so i've kind of hit a point where i'm just like i just want to talk about what i want to talk about because i feel like no matter how you try to find some kind of common ground or meet you know at some place you know in the middle to form some kind of synthesis it doesn't really allow for any type of synthesis like there's nothing really allowed except for total acceptance of intersectionality in the in the discourse there's there's you know no real allowance for anything else that's 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 my finding personally yeah it's not so much a, a question i guess but just an observation yeah i mean um well yeah there's a couple interesting things here i would say that as an academic i don't have an interest in questioning intersectionality um i have an interest in saying the word intersectional as often and as loud as possible so that all the white liberals of the academy know that I'm a good white man. Um, and because I question it, I've actually been attacked. Um, not to say that like, I'm a victim, right? And I say, and I use attack as like, you know, I've been verbally disparaged, not like punched or anything like that, right? Um, but it, but this is very interesting because like when I was an undergraduate student, um, I never really got a chance to study feminism or anything like this. Um, so I didn't know that much about it. I read the introduction to Beauvoir's The Second Sex in my existentialism class. And um, other than, you know, a couple of passing things here and there in terms of my, um, uh, in, in terms of like gen ed classes, I didn't really get exposed to that sort of thing. And one of the philosophy professors who taught feminism where I went to undergrad, you know, I talked to her when I was in grad school and she was like, oh, I, you know, I, I never noticed you, you know, in my feminism class. That's social political philosophy that's what your interest is in right and i said hmm good point i should really make it a point to to study this so yeah when i got to grad school i found out there was a women and gender studies certificate and i thought well you know this is something i should really pursue so i took queer theory 
I took feminist philosophy. I took a sociology of law class. And a big component of that class was feminist jurisprudence and also critical race theory stuff with a heavy dose of intersectionality. And um, I started to present at conferences on these topics and do research. I got a couple of uh, internal research grants at Texas A&M for my projects. I did archival work that resulted in a publication on C. Wright Mills, the sociologist C. Wright Mills, and um, his relationship to uh, feminist social science um, and, and Simone de Beauvoir got that published in, uh, in a top European journal of social science, uh, social theory. And then when I graduated and started teaching, I taught feminist philosophy um, in, our, in our philosophy department. And I, so I did all of this because I took this question so seriously, right? Just that one faculty member saying, hey, you never took this class with me, but this is part of your area of interest. Shouldn't you know about it? And I said, yeah, I should. So I did all that work to know about it. And then I come up with these kinds of critiques. Now, if I never read a single page of feminism or a single page of intersectionality uh, literature, and I just said, yeah, I love those things. No one would question me. No one would ask me, well, what have you read? They would they would never even come up mm-hmm. because I've already just said the right thing. But because I actually took all the time and energy to investigate this and really figure out what I thought about it, and then I have some critiques, now all of a sudden it's a problem. Not because I did the work, but because I reached the wrong conclusion. Exactly. And and so, you know, um, and so one time, again, this was uh this was after I graduated and back. Uh, from grad school and back when I had social media, I posted a comment based on my research here and in line with some of the stuff we've been talking about here about intersectionality. And I said, the history of feminism in the United States is the history of the obfuscation of white supremacy in the United States. That was the claim. And it was based on reading things like Louise Michelle Newman and some of the other texts that we've been discussing here today and some of the intellectual history. And uh, and I was criticized for this. I was, I was told that, well, if I had just read the right feminists, I would understand. And if maybe I had just read more, and I was being told this by somebody who didn't publish in gender theory, gender social theory, who uh, hadn't done archival work, who didn't have um, a graduate certificate from the Women and Gender Studies program at our university. And so I asked, I have all these credentials. I've taught this, I've researched in this, I've published in this, I've presented on this, and I have certificate in this. How am I not qualified to speak on this? And again, this was somebody who had none of those credentials and they just thought, well, if I just knew what was right, then I wouldn't be saying the things I said rather than oh, you seem to have at least a somewhat carefully considered position given all the work you've done on it. And so, um, and so, you know, like that's the way that it kind of goes. If I was lazy and didn't do anything and just said what people wanted to hear, I'd be patted on the back. Well, well, well because I worked hard and I, and I say things people don't want to hear, then I get criticized. You know what it ties into when you describe it and I think about it, it ties into re- religion because like if you're talking to a religious person, the religious person doesn't want you to read the Bible because they're interested in having a um, synthesis between your atheism and their religion and whatever. Like they want you to read the Bible so you can become a Christian. They're proselytizing. So it's like if you just show up one day and say, hey, I believe that, you know, Christ is our Lord and Savior and you didn't read a single piece of the Bible, they'd be happy. They'd be like, hey, um, great. Um, here's where to start with the Bible, you know, but but they'll just be happy that you joined the church. But, you know, when they give you the passages to read or whatever, the idea is to um, 
um, convert and proselytize, not to open the door to a critique of um, religion and, you know, open the door to the possibility that, you know, uh, Christianity might might be wrong. Like, that's what I feel like you just kind of described there, that this is, um, in a, in its own way, a religious mindset um, masquerading as an empirical or, uh, you know, a- academic mindset, which to me is okay. I mean, like, as long as you admit, like, what something is, that it's advocacy, that it's this, like, you know, like, like religion doesn't really, you know, pretend to be something other than a religion. So at least you can kind of deal with it as such. But this um, is pretending to be something based on data and empirical whatever. But then if you make the mistake of trying to engage it on that level, you get treated with the intellectual. Sorry, we get treated with a religious response. And it's just leads to these kind of cross wires. That, that's kind of ended up frustrating me and made me just kind of not really care as much about, about you know, pretending otherwise anymore, you know? Um, yeah. And I mean, I've had the same conversations, you know, with, with a lot of Marxists too. And like I said earlier, uh, I've been heavily influenced by Marxism. Uh, and at one point, I even thought of myself as a Marxist in some kind of way. Um, but then I just found well, there was things that Marxism didn't adequately explain for me. And uh, and my move was then to move on into the Africana philosophy tradition, especially anti-colonialism, where I found uh, a far more compelling set of concepts that I could put together um, a, a theory of, of humanity and society that seemed to explain so much more to me uh, in, in a coherent way. But then when I talk to Marxists about it, they're like, well, you know, did you actually read Marx correctly? And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, yo, like I'm telling you, I used to sort of think of myself as a Marxist, yet here we are where it's like I've changed my views based on carefully consider, uh, you know, um, information and, and and new ideas and exploring more. And, um, you know, and it doesn't mean that like the thing I believe now is right. I've changed my views a lot over my the course of my life, and I will probably continue to do so. And, you know, even after I die, maybe the last things I say, the next people who come along will just show that it was all bullshit. I'm totally fine with that. But what I'm not fine with is just clinging to, um, you know, slogans or or things because of their affect. I really want to know more about what reality is, not just what will make me feel good about what reality is. And um I'm 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 so glad you said that and brought up uh, the Marxism because I think it's uh, very easy to make it seem like we're picking our intersectionality. But I could also see a lot of Marxists who behave the way you said, you know, pumping their fists and agreeing with us because in their mind, oh, they're attacking identity politics. And yeah, that's what identity politics does as a religion. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because it's so true. Like a lot of Marxists and not all Marxists, but a lot of them do the same thing where it's like a religion and the Communist Manifesto is like a religious text to them or or, or capital. And I think the real difference, you know, or the real sign you can do to tell if you're behaving that way is if you're more interested in trying to show that a certain person said something or that a certain book has this in it than just examining whether the belief is true. And, and to give an example, like in, because uh, I grew I grew up Christian, I was a Catholic. And um, one of the big things of when I went to Catholic school is trying to show something is right or wrong by trying to show what's in the Bible or that somebody holy um, said the thing. So, for example, homosexuality is wrong because here's this passage that um, says homosexuality is wrong. So it's not about let's examine the data on homosexuality. You know, it's a com- it's a competition to prove that the book said it. But then the person who was maybe more um, progressive in their religion would try to say, well, actually, Jesus said this and this said that. And it becomes a competition to um, kind of validate the book and show that the book or, you know, the, the religion. And I noticed that intersectionality kind of is the same thing, where if you can kind of prove that the right person said something, that's supposed to be proof that it's 
right? Like, you know, if you look at this text, and that's kind of why they just think the text is supposed to convert you, because it's kind of taken as a given that the text is is right. And they actually expect other people to behave the same way. And I noticed that a lot of times with Marxists, where there'd be a new there'd be a new issue in the news, and it would be like, say, immigration. And if someone would write a case, the Marxist case for immigration, and it would be all about trying to prove that immigration is good by trying to prove that Marx would have supported it. <laughs> Whereas to me, it's like, yeah, maybe Marx would have supported it, maybe not. But why are we presuming that uh, everything good needs to be proven to have been said by Marx in order to be to be good? Like, like maybe it's perfectly possible that immigration is good, and when we read Marx, uh, he'll be against it. Like, you know, to me, the goal shouldn't be to prove that. But yeah, there's all these articles, the Marxist case for this, the Marxist case for that. And it spends more time instead of litigating the issue with modern data, trying to reverse engineer or retrofit it into uh, what, what Marx said. Like, Marx said this about that. That is like this. Therefore, Marx would have also supported this. Therefore, this is good. And as someone who grew up in Catholic school, that's totally what they try to do. Like, you know, Jesus said this, or God said this, or the Bible said this. Uh, they didn't directly talk about this, but, but since this is similar to what Jesus talked about, as Christians, we should be um, racist or not racist, uh, pro-gay or homophobic, etc. And that type of backwards rationalization and trying to make everything fit into the text rather than figure out if the text itself is wrong or right is another thing that kind of makes me think that intersectionality is very much uh, the way it's described, like a like a religion, unfortunately. Um, here's the good news. We're at the last question. Sorry it took so much longer than we planned, but this was a great conversation. I appreciate you giving up your Saturday like this. It's yeah, it was awesome to talk. So yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's definitely. So the good news is this is the last question. The bad news is this will probably have to be your longest answer because <laughs> it's a very open-ended question. <laughs> but it's basically wrapping up the last and I think probably most damning part of your critique of intersectionality. And I will lead up to it by just directly quoting the paragraph that precedes it, where you say, um, that, okay, as if this were not enough to question intersectionality, there are more problems with Crenshaw's formulation of this now popular theory. Like McKinnon, who is Catherine McKinnon, um, who we discussed earlier, Crenshaw argued that when power is based on biological sex, the sex and power, males, use sexual violence as a means of social control. To put it in no uncertain terms, men rape women as a means of perpetuating their control over women. In her 1991 essay, Mapping the Margins, the second one, the one that you said is the most problematic one, Crenshaw states that, quote, the use of rape to legitimize efforts to control and discipline the Black community is well established in historical literature on rape and race, end quote. Though she claims this fact is well established, she only cites Joyce Williams and Karen Holmes' 1981 work, The Second Assault, Rape and Public Attitudes. As with McKinnon's theory of patriarchy, though, we can trace the history of Williams and Holmes' work back to fundamentally racist origins. And basically, um, Crenshaw's work kind of legitimates the idea of uh, Black men as being kind of um, pathologically inclined toward toward rape as a way to exercise their uh, patriarchy. And that, you know, it kind of reiterates the old racist idea that 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 black men are very driven by a primal brutal um desire desire to rape and she says this based on these two women Joyce William and Karen Holmes 1981 work second assault but you lay out and map a framework that kind of traces the uh intellectual lineage of that work and I think it's very fascinating and disturbing so if, as a final um answer would you mind mapping out how this one work the only work that um Crenshaw uses to kind of reinforce this idea of uh black men being driven to uh 
use rape as part of their exercise of patriarchy, how Williams and Holmes, like first, what their work is about, what the second assault is about, and what the intellectual lineage of it of it is, uh, you know, that 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 led there. Like, like what are the ingredients that go into that stew? And what makes them um tie into racist and colonialist um attitudes? Yeah. So um again, you know, here I'm just drawing on um uh Curry's work and um and the intellectual history that he lays out um around these texts. So this is sort of a, a synopsis or a praises of, of the longer argument that that he gives. Um so for those who are interested uh, in the claims, they are more fully substantiated in his article, which is linked in, in the article of mine that we're talking about here. So I would uh, recommend checking that out if you're really, really interested here. Um, but yeah, so what Curry is trying to do is he's trying to say, let's let's take a let's take a look at a truth claim that that Crenshaw uh, advances and then see what the evidence for this is. And in this particular case, she's trying to make the truth claim that black men use rape, uh, sexual violence to control black women within the black community. And so, and she cites uh, Williams and Holmes 1981 book, The Second Assault, as you say. So then the question is, how did their claim get from uh, get formulate where did this come from and how do we uh, how do we evaluate that citation as a kind of evidence for Crenshaw's claim in the first place and Curry just traces it back genealogically here um, to Martin Wolfgang and Franco uh, Ferrucci's um, 1967 book The Subculture of Violence and this is where the subculture of violence theory uh, emerges in the first place the idea here is that there's mainstream culture in parentheses white culture in the United States, and then there's a black subculture, and that this black subculture is pathological. It leads black men and black women to do pathological things that are self-destructive. And um, you know, if this sounds familiar, well, this is the pretty standard right-wing response. You know, uh, oh, police killed another black man. Police killed another black woman. Well, look, black people are killing themselves. That sort of thing. Um, that black culture is the problem. And actually, if anybody's interested in a really sophisticated analysis of this, I'll recommend Franz Fanon's 1956 essay, Racism and Culture, where he talks about racism uh, sort of reforming from a biological racism. Oh, the problem is inherent in the genetics of black people, for example, to, well, it's a problem of the culture of the colonized. If we can just assimilate them into civilized culture, then things would be fine. Um, so uh, Fanon gives an analysis of that kind of thing as well. But um, so drawing on Wolfgang and uh, Federkucci's subculture of violence, uh, Wolfgang's student in 1971, um, uh, Michiam Amir, he builds on this in his book, Patterns of Forcible Rape. And he claims that Black culture makes Black men become rapists. And the reason is, is because the Black family structure, in his terms, were improper that black fathers are absent, that black mothers are unfit parents, and because black culture prioritizes sexual pleasure over civilized pleasure or something to that effect. Um, and so as a result of this milieu, uh, Amir's claim in the book Patterns of Forcible Rape 
is that black men become uh, rapists because they need to psychologically overcompensate for their feminized self-image. In other words, black men don't occupy a patriarchal position, and so they try to overcompensate with their lack of position through sexual violence by raping black women. Um, and again, this should sound very familiar to the history of uh, claims about the black male rapists and so on. Um, now, another sort of um, text here that takes up this view is the very famous book by Susan Brown Miller, Against Our Will, which is published in 1975. And this idea that black men are uh, overcompensating for their feminized self-image uh, by using sexual assault and rape um, is taken up um, in feminist texts at the time, especially Susan Brown Miller's book. And Susan Brown Miller said about this book, Patterns of Forcible Rape, she said, quote, the single most important contribution of Amir's Philadelphia study was to place the rapist squarely within the subculture of violence. And just within the last couple of years, even The Guardian published uh, um, an interview with Susan Brown Miller talking about how important her classic book was. So just because this was published in 1975 doesn't mean the idea has gone away. In fact, uh, one of the faculty members that I took um, feminist philosophy class with often uses this book uh, in her classes within the last decade. So, um, you know, that should, that should say something there. Now, um, what's different here is that late 19th century, early 20th century, the white supremacist claim was that black men were raping white women. But Amir modulated this view. He said, is not that that's the case. He replaced that idea with the idea that black men primarily rape black women in their own communities, right? And so there's this kind of transition from black men as interracial rapists of white women to black men as intra-racial rapists of black women. Um, and so that's a key part of, of this of this history. The idea that the black man is a rapist didn't go away. Just his uh, his targets, his victims, are what has shifted uh, in light of Amir's book here and the subcultural violence um, theory. Now, moving forward, um, Curry also cites the work of Lynn Curtis, several works by her, including her book, uh, Violence, Rape, and Culture. And here is where you actually get the transformation of the subculture of violence theory into a theory of black male pathology. So the original subculture of violence theory and Amir's application of it, uh, the idea was that black culture as a whole was pathological and therefore black men and black women acted pathologically because of this subculture milieu that they found themselves in with improper values, improper family structures, and so on. But when Lynn Curtis takes up this view, what she does is she modifies this and she positions Black women as neutral or as innocent bystanders. And all of the pathology then is transferred into Black males who are described as desperately trying to join patriarchy. And so... So so, 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 so let me just uh, stop you there just to clarify something. So before the view would be kind of similar maybe to what uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, where the whole Black culture, men and women, are co-creating pathology um, together. So whatever Black male pathology there is, there's a it's kind of co-created by the Black community, both genders together. And what this is signifying is a shift from that type of idea to one where uh, it's the black men who are the unique locus, the unique focus or source of the pathology 
uh, it's kind of created from and in the, in them. And um, the black community is no longer a co-created thing. Uh, the black community's pathology is no longer a co-created thing that imply an indictment of both black men and black women, but uh, are something uniquely localized in the black men that uh, not only white people suffer from, you know, uh, as claimed by like 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 racist white supremacists, but that even black women within the community uh, suffer from. W- would you say that's a fair? Yeah, yeah. So um, you're right. Um, the the Moynihan study in 1965, you know, uh, sort of advanced this idea that there was something pathological about the black community, its culture, and its family structure, and this is what the subculture of violence um, view is taking up a very similar approach. And what ends up happening here is uh, from the late mid to late 60s, when it was thought that black culture is created by black men and black women, and therefore all the pathologies are shared uh, among black men and black women. When you get to uh, Lynn Curtis, what she wants to do is say, well, it's uh, not so much that black culture is pathological and co-created by black men and women, but also affecting both black men and women. It's that uh, black men are actually trying to join patriarchy that they've been excluded from, and that's the reason. So it's not so much that black culture is, um, for, for Lynn Curtis, not so much black culture is uh, pathological, but that black men are trying to uh, get get to that patriarchy that they that they feel they've wrongly been denied. That's the claim, right? So then when you get to Williamson Holmes, when you get to their book, The Second Assault, that Crenshaw cites, The Second Assault is based on the work of Curtis and develops it further. So Williams and Holmes take this idea that black men become rapists because they want to imitate white patriarchy. And, um, and here, right, the idea is that while black males have a male body. And so they have male privilege, just like white males who have a male body and uh, white women, right, have a female body and they are vulnerable then to sexual violence. And same thing with black women with their female bodies. And so they're vulnerable to sexual um, uh, violence by the patriarchs of these races. And so, um, and so it was the aspiration to patriarchy that made both white males and black males rapists, uh, according to the claim. And so um, Curry actually notes um, that the second assault by Williams and Holmes uh, was not reviewed positively by, by scholars. And uh, even one reviewer said that the quantitative data contradicted the conclusions presented in the book. So it wasn't like it was this, uh, you know, breakthrough study of something. It was published. A few people read it. The reviewers were like, Meh, it's not that great or it's even uh, fundamentally incorrect. Um, that was sort of the immediate take up of the book. But then when we move to the uh, beginning of the 1990s, a decade after the book was published and Crenshaw cites it, um, we have to think about this entire history as being behind that one truth claim that the use of rape to legitimize efforts to control and discipline the black community is well established, right? And in this case, we're talking about it's well established that black men use rape and sexual violence to uh, um, against black women. And that's the history that it comes out of this idea that black people, black culture is pathological, then that gets modified into, well, it's not so much that it's that black men are pathological because they imitate 
white patriarchy, and then because white patriarchy is said to use sexual violence, rape to maintain its power, black men must be doing the same thing too. And so when you get to this idea of black men as rapists in Crenshaw's 1991 essay, you can literally trace it through all these theories that said black people are pathological, um, black men are rapists, all these sorts of things, all by these white scholars, white feminists, um, who are trying to uh, give an explanation for what they see as a very real social phenomenon of the black male rapist. And, and you know what's kind of uh, crazy about the implications of this, right? If you think about it all together. So they're citing these women, Williams and Holmes. Williams and Holmes uh, are part of a lineage of a very racist project, uh, you know, demonized black men and, you know, black culture as, uh, you know, pathological and black men as like um, rapists. But it's like, this is kind of evolution in, in this work that, that, find, that find interesting of um, going from taking a very old racist idea that you can see in things like Birth of a Nation and stuff, you know, but that was kind of thought of being created by both black men and women, which is just this, this um the black brute, you know. Uh, and instead of challenging a very fundamentally racist idea that is just so baked into um this country's view of black people, it tries to disaggregate um black women. Like 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 the stereotype is true, it's just that um black women are exempt from you know having any role in this. So instead of saying like hey, this stereotype is not true, it's like hey, all this bad stuff is true, but uh it's only comes from uh black women black black women are the innocent bystanders and um and victims of of this thing um that i find is is pretty pretty interesting that it, it challenges absolutely not only does it not challenge um anything racist and old it actually um reaffirms it but just carves out an an exception or an exemption for for black women it disaggregates them so now they're almost a separate interest group from uh black men or from the black community in general like they have their own interest or they're almost like their own group or race or identity apart from uh black men and the black community because if you're if this is what the black community is something that has to be co-constituted with um rapist oppressors then it's almost like they have to be their own interest group and you kind of see in how in all the discussions now everything is about um black women this black women that like like white democrats basically now just openly talk about only um black women in general not really about uh black people anymore and i think it's sectionality kind of normalized and um you know paved the way but that's the second thing from what you just said that i find very striking is that um even though there was a kind of interest in by a group of white people into believing this um it still didn't go over quite well like 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 curry points out um it was poorly received and one reviewer you know even found that the data contradicted you know whatever but somehow when a white woman when, when a black woman cites the same book that was previously rejected now becomes unassailable i think it kind of lends to this idea of um, the interest convergence here, you know, what Derek Bell calls interest convergence um, between white and black people that leads to different types of black so-called advancements. Right here, there's a convergence. We need you to help us legitimize and thought launder this, which, you know, works. She uh, quotes from this lineage and suddenly now it's unassailable. Now you can't, now you're actually racist if you don't believe uh, this stuff and the sexist if you don't believe this stuff about uh, black men. But in in return, um, you can now be disaggregated from the pathology like like Be like Derek Bell said like like this this to me validates Derek Bell in a lot of ways because they're one of Derek Bell Bell's beliefs the three things are a materialism realism and anti-colonialism they used to make up Derek Bell the the realism part uh to Derek Bell is that racism is permanent in America that it's it's uh it's probably his most pessimistic uh view in a str 
strange way, I feel like the intersectional belief system shows a certain belief in in that themselves. This, I, and I think if you believe that racism is permanent, which I think deep down these people kind of do, just based on the how, they, how they're writing and, and treating this topic, the disaggregation almost becomes the best solution. Like, okay, if black people are forever going to be poorly regarded, there's ever forever going to be oppressed. The best thing to do is to disaggregate myself and my subsection of the black community from the overall black pathology. So I think the interest convergence on the black woman side of intersectionality is um, the right to disaggregate. The, you know, like, uh, yeah, it's not that black culture is unassimilable, that it can't be assimilated. It's that uh, it's the pathology is localized in black men, but black women are still assimilable into the American project, into the American exceptionalism, into the American I ideas. I mean, they can't say that explicitly, but I think if you put all the things together and if you look at all the things that are cited by um, the people that Crenshaw cites, I think I think it. you can't help but at least consider that that's part of the motivation. I, I, you can't mind read, you can't say for sure, but I feel like the circumstantial evidence does lend a lot of support um, to that. And yeah, I mean, that's that, that's my final takeaway. I want to make sure I'm not putting words into the guest mouth. He did not I mean, say those things, but... Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a fascinating observation. I'll, uh, I'll uh, just remind the readers that you said it, not me, but uh, I do... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I want uh, to make that, make that clear that, that you, you don't necessarily believe that. It's just my takeaway from from reading this section. Yeah, no, but I mean, like, I mean, if you think about it from that perspective, then you make the jump to black male studies and you say, well, no wonder, right, that black male studies critique of intersectionality of of modern black feminism and and especially of of white feminism as such uh you know become so salient because uh if if what you said has uh you know even uh a partial compelling grain of truth to it that lends so much more credence to the black male studies critique of what's going on because black male studies approach is going to say look outgroup men like black men in a white supremacist society like the united states they're the ones who are going to be exterminated this doesn't mean that black women are going to suffer no violence but it does mean that if you can put if you can organize ideology in such a way to to distance yourself from uh you know from from those who are being framed as as the primary threat to the civilization, then you can survive within that, uh, even if you don't fundamentally end or alter the white supremacy that motivates the whole thing. So, um, yeah, so I don't think what you have said is... Um, is in contradiction with um, the main thrust of the of the critique that you get from from black male studies. And just to bring it back to Derek Bell, you know, he uh, has a very different view of all of this. Um, if you look at the latter chapters of "And We Are Not Saved" or or even the whole book of Gospel Choirs, you know, he's talking about uh, he's talking about how black men and women's fates are bound with each other. And uh, it's really only through uh, some serious soul-searching, cooperation, dialogue, and and um, and working together that they're going to be able to save each other, to save themselves, and to, and to save their people, right? Like, to save the community as such. And, uh, and Bell is very clear that, you know, it's not like he says, oh, well, we should romanticize Black men and women's um, relationships because he's because he acknowledges and, and accounts for many problems that that he and others have observed. But 
his solution isn't, well, I guess we go our separate ways and whoever makes it, makes it. Um, his his response to that is, uh, we have to rethink how we're relating to each other because living in a white supremacist context has got us all messed up uh, up until the point of, of, of fighting with each other. And this is really compatible with a lot of the anti-colonial stuff. It's compatible with um, uh, the work that comes out of the tradition of Af- uh, Africana womanism, uh, uh, the work of uh, Oye Wumi and the invention of women and uh, and a lot of a lot of um, you know these broader sort of um, movements to think about gender sexuality and oppression within various colonial contexts and um, and so in that way I think Bell is offering some kind of um, uh, alternative to the way that you've described this um, you know what seems to be a logical outcome of of the intersectional approach um, and uh, and I think that that's that's very fascinating to consider um, in that way. Um, yeah, yeah. And in that way, it's very much the opposite because what Bell just described is the total opposite of disaggregating and saving yourself, you know, like this idea that um, one part of the collective, you know, and now to use myself as a as a personal example, I'm personally, I'm married to a South Asian woman, but it's like, I'm always conscious that the Black community sinks or swims together. There's no way that Black men can do well without black women doing well and vice versa you know there's 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 no way that I, you know, by myself can achieve um, full humanity, but half the the race, you know, can be pathologized. And and I and I think, you know, a lot of people do think that way. They think if I can work in a non-black place, if I can uh, live in a non-black uh, community, if I could be in a relationship with um, um, non-black people, um, you know, I can separate or disaggregate myself from the fate that affects the whole the whole community. And I think it's a very naive um, way to look. It happens in class things with black people too like if i can become a rich black person i can disaggregate myself from the problems of poor black people you know and this will become a poor black problem but uh you get that wake-up call it's uh yeah so yeah and and the interesting thing is too here in this difference is that um the the history of of white feminism in the united states has largely been the opposite of this the the history of white feminism in the u.s has largely been white men you aren't going to thrive without us you need us and yes that's the leverage that white women have used to solidify their place in the colonial empire and um and you know and white men have made the the argument too right i mean it comes in all sorts of different forms but at at, uh, the bottom line is that um you can't have a white empire without white women having white babies and uh and totally true and so you know uh and so a lot of white feminism has been predicated on the idea that every once in a while you need to remind those white men not to take you for granted otherwise if they go their separate ways then the entire civilization the entire uh, white civilization will collapse and uh uh dave chappelle said that in one of his uh specials recently and it's funny everyone only talked about the trans part of the special but this part did not get much coverage was where he said uh you know feminism is uh we were in on the heist together but now we're going to argue about the cut mm-hmm. and i and i think the same thing about uh the european and american proletariat you know too working classes i mean this is this is du bois you know 
know, he he was like, he was like, you know, the European working class isn't interested in ending colonialism. It's just interested in getting its cut. Um, and so, you know, all, that's what a lot of these kinds of, you know, sort of Western pseudo radical politics have have soured me on is that a lot of them just take for granted uh, colonial, what we might call colonial or imperial privilege. And, and they're predicated on the idea of just getting more for themselves out of that relationship, but they're not really interested in ending colonial imperial relations and structures as such. And uh, and I think at least as a as a philosopher and as an individual person who's interested in these kinds of things, um, this is what really you know sort of drew me to the anti-colonial tradition of Africana philosophy because um, it's dealing with this fundamental thing that all these other things, Marxism, feminism, post-structuralism, so all of them don't look at it because they all are predicated on the back of it. Um, but I guess that's a bigger conversation for another time too. Definitely. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And actually, I'm sorry, I did think of one last question. I'll drive myself crazy if I don't ask it, but it just popped in my head, right? Um, okay. But this this will hopefully be a short answer. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that strikes me is that, you know, if you look at what um, Derek Bell's racial realist school of CRT believed versus this um, idealist school of CRT, that has kind of culminated in um, intersectionality or the anti-racist school by Ibram Kendi, um, you kind of see that not only is Derek Bell's school better at describing American racism than the idealist school, I think it even works as a, descri a description and indictment of the idealist school of CRT. And what I mean by that is like the whole idea of racial, con of, uh, of interest convergence and, you know, racial progress and racial sacrifice, I think works even to explain why the idealist school has become so prominent versus Derek Bell's own, own school of CRTs because there's an interest convergence there. Now, now my question to you, on, and this time really will be the last question, do we know or can you tell us what was Derek Bell's view of the idealist school of CRT and uh, in general and Crenshaw uh, specifically? Was he still around uh, when Crenshaw, I don't really know what their relationship was uh, to each other and you know what his relationship was to the idealist school, if he had misgivings about it, or if he kind of believe, believed at the time that it was a, a necessary and good expansion of his CRT and he wasn't around to see what it ended up becoming. Do we have any um, knowledge on that? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question and, and, and a great observation. Um, you know, I've always sort of thought, too, that uh, the realist approach can give an account of how the idealist approach emerges and why it works, but the idealist approach can't do the reverse. It can't give a good account uh, of of the realist approach and so um other than just saying like they've got the wrong idea but uh who's to say who has the right idea you know um th these are the kinds of things we have to work out they can't just be assumed uh by the theory in the first place so i think that's uh i think that's a, a really good point and and one of the things i think that attracts me to this kind of uh this kind of methodology or approach um in terms of what derrick bell thought about the idealist school um i obviously never met Bell and I've never met Crenshaw, so I don't know them personally. Um, I also have never, you know, sort of been able to talk to them about what their relationship is. Uh, Crenshaw is considered a kind of, is a, considered a student of Bell um, in that sense um, of being in the tradition. And I, and from what I know about uh, Bell and what I've been, you know, sort of told about him is that he really did kind of consider himself the father of CRT and that he really did consider himself 
you know, someone who whose work sort of spawned an intellectual movement in a sense. But um, uh, and I do know that he appreciated some of what we would call the idealist school of thought um, in terms of their contributions, despite some of the fundamental methodological philosophical differences between what he's up to and what some of the, um, you know, described idealists are up to but um but yeah uh there is one place that we can sort of um look for what bell thought about the idealists and this is in his afterward to that 2003 collection crossroads directions and a new critical race theory um the one that we've talked about richard delgado criticizing so heavily um derrick bell does have an afterward to that book and um it's his one sort of short appearance in it and uh he does try to comment on the book and i think you know i'll leave it to the listeners to decide whether or not he's being too generous or too you know uh conciliatory or something like this um but there's two comments here that i think are important the first one is is he's asking the question about the reception of CRT. And remember, this is almost 20 years ago at this point. He says, if the lives of those we most respect are any indication, our effectiveness as CRT scholars may be best measured by the mainstream's rejection. Certainly, too much public recognition may be cause for concern and a re-examination of our goals. The desire for general acceptance to have our writing read by many rather than the faithful few is normal, but in striving for readership, the temptation is ever-present to soften our critiques and rationalize rather than rant against the injustices in our midst. And uh, with that passage, you know, I think he's setting a warning. He's saying, yes, it's good to get recognition, but be careful about who's recognizing you and the reasons that they're recognizing you or using your ideas or taking them up. Um, And because I think what he's saying is you have to be careful about that interest convergence playing you, making it look like some real progress when in fact it's not. The mainstream, the dominant power structure is to always to be distrusted. And insofar as the dominant power structure is accepting of your work, maybe you're not doing anything as radical as you think. Um, at least that's sort of the way that, that I take it. And he ends it by saying, as this book illustrates, our writing is our art. Like all art, it comes in many forms, but it must be grounded in truth as we see it. That truth may and will evolve with our understanding and come to reflect wisdom that emerges with experiences. The chapters in this volume adhere to this basic credo. They offer unusual perspectives and unfailing insights into the evils of our time. That is our mission on life and our contribution to the future. So uh, with those two passages sort of juxtaposed, I'll, uh, I'll sort of leave it an open question there about what Bell's final verdict about the uh, CRT idealist might be, though I do know that uh, there is passing evidence in his writings that he at least did appreciate some of their contributions. Uh, that's a great that's a great place to end it. Thanks so much for spending your Saturday with us. Uh, I don't know how many parts this episode is going to be, but I just found it too fascinating to stop. So uh, yeah, thanks thanks again. And uh, any last things you want to say as far as letting people know where to find you? Any um, more papers or uh, articles coming up? Just you know, last chance to plug anything you want to plug. Um, yeah, I. Uh... Um, I have a, a recent book out that's totally unrelated to what we've talked about today. 
It's called Cypherpunk Ethics. Um, it's about you know encryption and uh, uh, digital, the digital world, and applied ethics and WikiLeaks and privacy and security and transparency and all these sorts of things. Um, so if that's someone's cup of tea, uh, feel free to check it out. Um, other than that, if uh, you want to check out some of my other work that's related to what we talked about today, you can find me at philpeople.org. You can find me on Google Scholar or um, on researchgate.net, all under Patrick D. Anderson uh, from Central State University. And if anybody just wants to chat about something, has any questions, um, if you have criticism, send them to someone else, please. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, if you, if you have anything you want to chat about or questions or anything, you can always feel free to email me at panderson at centralstate.edu. And uh, I'm always just looking for a good conversation. So um, so yeah, feel free to reach out. Uh, yeah, that's, that sounds good. And I actually didn't know about that book, but I would love to uh, I would love to read it. So if you ever want to come back and talk about uh, that book, you're totally welcome because because that lines up with a lot of things I've been thinking about recently. I'm reading the description of the book right now. And uh, yeah, I would totally love to talk to you about this book at, at some point. So um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, take care. Uh, have a good one. And yeah, uh, in the notes, we're going to have links to all the articles as well as to some papers uh, by Dr. Anderson that we didn't get to uh, discuss in the episode. But I think you might guys, you guys might find interesting as as well. So with that, uh, take care. Have a great Saturday, and everyone listening, be good.